The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. You're going back to the front, my friend. You may get shot, you may get killed, but you're going up to the fighting. Yes, sir. <laughs> um, uh, uh, tonight, we're going to be um, talking about leadership, sir. Uh, I hope you're up for it, sir. <laughs> I was going to do the, uh, the whole shtick, but... <laughs> okay, it's fine, it'll, anyway. It, it'll screw with the volumes. Yeah, we better not. All right. <laughs> and tonight we're going to be talking about leadership and all of its myriad forms. Some people think being a leader means being really bossy and other people think it means, you know, just being one of the boys. And the answer is both and neither at the same time. Uh, but a lot of but leadership is something that's oddly not understood well by people. So we're going to talk about leadership in popular culture tonight. How's that sound, Don? Yeah, good enough. All right, so let's do this thing. Um, since uh, I'm in charge and uh, I'm just that kind of person, I'm going to make you talk, soldier. So tell us about leadership. What is it? That, that's a good question because... Um... Come on, boy, spit it out. Don't hedge, hedge. Come on, come on, sir, spit it out. Sir. <laughs> oh, man, we could do a whole routine on this. but <laughs> We probably could. If you're talking about... Um leadership there's a lot of different ways of defining it i think for mm -hmm. purpose of our discussion there's kind of two things that we can look at that right. constitute leadership mm -hmm. and i would say the main thing is leadership is working getting a mass of people working towards a goal under the 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 intent and auspice of of, of a leader, either designated or assumed. Mm -hmm. And it kind of happens because proximity, I guess, is the easiest way to, to look at that. Because some people get bossy when other people are around them? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, in essence, what happens is if you've got a bunch of people, and mm -hmm. we've, talked, we've talked about this before, that, for instance, society isn't a thing. It's a bunch of little things that bump around into each other. Right. Any group of people works like that. Any group of people, you're going to have similar goals. You're going to have different goals. And to get anything done, even if what you want to get done is nothing and just live together without murdering each other, you kind of need a leader. You need some kind of individual that directs operations. Mm -hmm. um, that's the ideal. And then the bigger the organization the more you need somebody, or I'm going to say something, because in science fiction, it can be like a computer or an overmind or a psychic link that acts as the unifying directing force for a society. But you need something that provides some kind of direction. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Um, 
isn't that just simply the result of human beings being really, really lazy creatures? And so we generally want someone else to take charge. So eventually someone says, okay, fine, I'll do it. You're kind of hitting on, on something that's going to come back a few times, I suspect. That can be part of it. Um, mm-hmm. th- there's all kinds of reasons why you'll get a leader or a follower. Mm-hmm. In simplest, I guess, the ideal I like notion of what leadership is, it's that unifying direction to get a group of people working together towards a given task. Okay. Uh, you're getting at something... There's another aspect of it that happens when leadership happens that sometimes people need a focus or people need a goal or they need like a scapegoat Mm -hmm. that this is why people will look for leaders because you want kind of something external that gives you a little bit of direction, which is what you're saying because human brains aren't wired to do things. We like to do as little as possible. Oh, yes. So an external motivation gives us some direction. It also gives us kind of um, something to rally around. Mm -hmm. And it gives us sort of a ready-made scapegoat. Yeah, that's true. We don't have to take responsibility for our actions if the leader did it. So it's his fault. I was just following orders. Yeah, that's... And and even... Not even in that drastic kind of um, hearings at The Hague... <laughs> exactly uh-huh. sort of sort of way um even just from the idea to give us an excuse to do something ourselves mm-hmm. like this is what you'll see with like gangs and terrorist groups and malcontents that they'll rally around a leader because hearing somebody else say yeah we gotta kick all the swiss out of our country it gives vent to what you're already feeling and it gives you that excuse to take it that next step mm-hmm. um it's kind of the same thing that you'll see with um with uh even fandom and that mm-hmm. that if you get a unified leader who puts out an idea you can rally around that idea it kind of absolves you of a little bit of the guilt of something that you might be feeling right that you have 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 doubts, and, and and again, I don't even mean on a big cosmic level. It might be that um, I don't necessarily dig that in the comics Superman wears his underwear underneath his tights now. Mm-hmm. And it might be it's something that kind of bugs me. It's a little different. It's not huge. But if I see somebody online going on about how oh my god they've totally ruined the character, then I can rally against that. Like it validates kind of my own feelings. Hmm. Well, we definitely want other people to validate us. Like we want someone to go out and do the things we want to do so we can rally behind them and we and or not, or even just believe, yeah, yeah, that's right. And I'm glad to see someone's doing something about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a whole lot of that. Um, it also, they can act as a focus, as you said, for feelings of anger or resentment. I mean, for example, there are, this year in 2020, uh, COVID-19 has been going on and a lot of people are just filled up with anxiety because in some places like whole you know countries or cities are shut down and people are feeling really anxious and they're not feeling in control of their life. And then we had some social things happen that have um, caused, unjustly or unjustly, have caused the, um, have given people, sorry, 
We've had a few social things happen that have given people direction, and it gave them a chance, I think, to vent their feelings by saying, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm upset, I want to take control of something, and this social movement's happening, I'm going to participate in it, and I'm going to get involved so that I can express my feelings and feel a sense of taking control of my life and about society and everything else. Yeah. Yeah, I think we, we definitely... You see it more now, I think, because um, the number of disasters that we have, like right now, the whole like quite a few, fucking, quite a few. Yeah, the West Coast is currently on fire as we're speaking again. Yep, yep. Oh no, part of the West Coast is on fire. Part of it's actually being buried by snow right now. Yeah, that's as we're true. Recording this. Yeah, that that's true. It's 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 uh, both fire get, and ice. Yeah, the, the the world right now is basically the opening sequence of the nineteen eighty Flash Gordon movie. So, oh my god you're right i, I hadn't thought about that oh i i've been thinking about that a lot because it's like wow that's horrifying and planet mongo oh, oh what is that <laughs> thing that's approaching there's supposed to be something approaching us on halloween huh yeah. what coincidental timing i guess we better yeah. get that rocket ship ready dr zarkov there, there is isn't there oh, okay yeah that's uh this may be our last episode <laughs> this may <laughs> be everybody's true. last episode <laughs> Screw you! I'm I'm going off to Mongo. There's like uh, alien princesses to woo and uh, hawkmen to fight or work with. Um, oh no, the forest guys I'm supposed to fight. The hawkmen I'm supposed to work with, and the death dwarves I'm supposed to just party with. That's I think the way it works. You have this oddly figured out. <laughs> I have, I have. And by the way, folks, I'm not making that up. In the actual Flash Gordon comic strips, there were death dwarves. They're an actual thing <laughs> in Flash Gordon's Mongo setting. Death so dwarves. Weird. Think about that. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Anyway, we're, we're way off track. But okay, no, here. Actually, maybe we're not. Okay, so Flash Gordon actually is a good example. Leadership. Flash mm. is a leader, right? Right. Okay. And so what makes him a good or bad leader? Uh, see, this is where it starts getting tricky. Mm. Because you've also hit it the idea that Following something fulfills needs for people. Yes, it does. Mm -hmm. Because you get into you get into that that idea, like you said. Currently, there's so much going on; people feel a loss of control. Yes, they do, mm -hmm. and they they want that control, and they'll look to strange strange things to try to regain some of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's where you you get the idea that, like, say, uh, for instance there's a vocal number of people that believe wearing a mask is what the reptilians want you to do because that's the first step in making you compliant to their orders before they march us all off to the slaughter. I thought it was we were training our new AI overlords to be able to recognize us even with a mask on our face so that there'll be no escaping from them. <laughs> well, yeah, or it's just part of it so they can see because more people that wear masks have bought into the idea that the COVID-19 is real, which it isn't. And then when enough people wear masks, that's how George Soros will know it's okay to let Bill Gates inject us all with the nanobots that'll give Tom Hanks control of our minds, which again, I wish that was something I had made up off the top of my head. <laughs> I wish it was too, but we both know it's not. No. And then, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, thank you, QAnon. <laughs> well, it's not just them, because again, like we said, there's a bunch of different... Society's not a thing. Even QAnon isn't a thing. It's a mm -hmm. bunch of different things that start bumping into each other, right? Right, that's true. 
and that's what you get. So this idea of, of like the mask is part of oppression is popular because then it lets you not wear one. It mm-hmm. lets you, it eases the pain of being afraid that there's a horrifying disease around. Right. And when it gets vocalized outside of you, it gives you that chance to, to be off and running with doing this thing that you actually want to do, but didn't have the nerve to do yourself. Right. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. And and that's where you get a lot of like one of the most Orwellian things I ever heard, mm-hmm. uh, which was from the book Winners Take All. It was the first time I'd heard it, but I hear it a lot. And it was the idea of a thought leader. What's a thought leader? It's an influencer. Right. Okay. Is essentially, it's somebody that people will follow and crib ideas from, even though that person doesn't have any, they don't really have any kind of coronation. They're not really appointed a leader. They just sort of happen. A naturally occurring leader figure or something like that. Yeah. Um, don't, or doesn't that happen in uh, herd animals? Usually you end up with like a kind of in formal leader of the of the herd or whatever um and you they the rest of them just start following them you we and we don't usually know why they just do yeah it that can happen too um in a herd if you want to use the slightly inflammatory example uh, there's also the idea of uh, of i'm talking uh, about sheep i don't know what you're thinking about <laughs> well, i'm thinking about humans but there's also uh. there's also the idea of contagious activity Mm-hmm. That's true. That if one bolts, the rest of them will start bolting as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And then that one that origin originates that action becomes kind of a at least a temporary de facto leader. Right. That makes sense because they're usually bolting after that one or something similar. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. That makes sense. Because I I think that applies in the internet age because mm-hmm. so much of the internet is based on anger and fear. Right. And that's why you get weird conspiracy theories because somebody will just start running in that direction and other people will follow. Mm-hmm. And the more extreme the direction, the more likely some people are going to follow them. Yeah, and 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 again, it's it's you you start noticing it when you start looking at the hardcore independent. You know, anybody who uses the word sheeple to describe mm-hmm. people that fancies themselves as an independent thinker, you notice they always fall into a certain set limited number of groups and they always seem to follow a certain limited number of, of I'll say philosophers Mm -hmm. that a lot of these people, their individuality and their rugged individuality is wrapped around an idea ideology espoused by a specific individual or a small group of them. Usually. Yeah, that's true. and that's where I say it's it's that kind of weird irony that mm-hmm. their independence is based on following a set leader, but it's that idea that that set leader, even if you profess to have no leader, mm-hmm. is giving you that external motivation and it's giving you that rallying point to solidify your own perspective. Right. Okay. Well, maybe we should deviate a little bit. So are, are there different kinds of leaders? Yeah, there are because there there's and getting back to like what you said, what makes a good leader? Mm-hmm. It's a difficult question because again, there's different circumstances wherein a leader will arise. 
Right. Well, there's circumstantial leaders, but there's also people who are leaders by profession. Yeah. I mean, so there are different kinds of leaders depending on different circumstances. That's that's very true, definitely. Um, but aren't they usually differentiated not just by that, but by also their approach and their way of leading? Like some, of course, are more... Um, hands-on and some are more hands-off you know some leaders get right in there and they're with with everyone else and then there's others that are just um yeah they're 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 just kind of bossy and they just tell people what to do (laughs) yeah you're 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 right and it's it's one of those things that gets into that idea of uh Mm -hmm. the relationship between the leader and the follower right uh, if somebody has some kind of external authority vested in them, mm-hmm. that creates kind of a, there's kind of an inertial effect to that. Right. That it it's, it's, it's a, well, what, what I always call the Bavarian fire drill is a good example. What's a Bavarian fire drill? Uh, it comes from the Illuminatus trilogy books. Okay. And it's there's I, I think we've we've mentioned this before. It's the idea that we grow up with mm-hmm. certain ideas and images, and we're we're, we're in essence programmed to respond mm-hmm. certain ways to certain things. Right, makes sense. And in the book, the two characters, the one character is explaining it to the to the main guy. They pull up at a stoplight, and he says, "Okay, watch." And he gets out of the car. He says, "Follow me." And they go to the car behind them at the light, and he just starts yelling, "Bavarian fire drill! Everybody out!" out and everybody gets out of the car and they go to the next one he does the same thing everybody gets out of their cars following him around until like the light turns green he says all right drill over return to your vehicles carry on everybody goes back and takes off uh-huh and he points out it's because when you hear certain kinds of pe- like speech like very mm-hmm. assertive kind of speech when you hear phrases and ideas like fire drill mm-hmm. it creates automatic responses right Huh, that's true. It is because in, in the as book... um, Robert Cialdini in his book Influence would point out that um, we are basically filled with all these uh, subconscious reactions that we automatically do to certain things. Like we're literally programmed to react to certain things in certain ways. Yep, pretty much exactly what you're talking about. Oh, mind you, he's talking about more basic biological things that are almost hardwired into us. But I suspect that it can equally easily be programmed or be a combination thereof. Yeah, it it does because again, mm-hmm. going going with that idea that society is not a thing, when mm-hmm. all those things bump into each other, they'll create ebbs and flows. Right. And and I know this is we we've talked about this a lot, and it 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 comes back to to that idea that if you get enough like of these little groups that share fairly similar ideas and start moving in a similar direction, mm-hmm. that becomes a standard. And if you look at, say, uh, North American society, mm-hmm. we're brought up with certain values. We're, right. we're, we're taught certain things, and it creates kind of that unified direction to a certain degree. I can actually give you an odd example from... Uh a YouTube video I was just watching. Um, okay. They were talking about how um, 
differences between Chinese culture, mainland Chinese culture, and the North American culture. Mm-hmm. And the Chinese uh, government had to put out a directive to Chinese tourists to tell them, please don't beat each other up when you're in North America, because it'll you'll end up being hauled off by the police and it will cause <laughs> us problems. Right. Because in China, it's fairly common for spouses, mostly the husband, but not always, to... Um, physically beat their wives or occasionally you know wives to physically beat their husbands for them to actually have you know knock out drag out fist fights over you know things going on they're mm. very they're physically violent with each other and that's considered like normal behavior there right perfectly normal no problems at all whereas here in north america as noted that will get you arrested and in it has places in most places, it didn't used to, but in yeah. modern, but in, in you know, in the modern world, that kind of thing will get you arrested. So going back to your idea there, therefore, when you're in China, the idea of beating your spouse perfectly normal, apparently, still, um, hopefully not for much <laughs> longer, but, um, but in North America, that will automatically. I mean, you can just yell at your partner, and you'll you'll suddenly have a crowd streaming and yelling at you, right. Much less like clocking them one. Right. Um, unless, of course, you're the woman, in which case you can clock your husband and they pr- and the crowd will probably clap. But that's neither here nor there. That's just inherent sexism. Um, so anyway, the point being that, uh, again, it all depends on what you're raised with. It all depends on how you've been taught to interpret society and society's rules in the world and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and... People don't realize how prevalent that is. Because it's built into us from such a young age and such a basic level. Like, this is where culture shock comes into game. Go go to another country, for example, or another culture. When you go to another culture that's so different from your own, you get what's called culture shock. Because they're operating on a completely different set of subconscious and subliminal rules than you are. And your brain, basically, after about two and a half months freaks out mm-hmm. because it can't handle the fact that all the signals around it are wrong mm-hmm. at first you think it's awesome it's like wow this is new and interesting and then slowly things creep up until your brain says nope that's it i've had enough about two and a half three months in and some people go completely crazy some people just get mildly depressed but whatever you will have a emotional reaction you will have a kind of a mild emotional breakdown for a little while and then eventually you adjust and mostly it will go away, though it'll come back from time to time. Mm-hmm. And that's all those subconscious cues and that's all that built-in stuff from society that you grew up in literally sorting itself out. Yep. Yeah, because a, a lot of the way that we humans think mm-hmm. is acquired. Right. A uh, great example is Nobody would argue. Well, I shouldn't say nobody because I'm sure somewhere. Don't say nobody. Yeah. Somewhere somebody's going to think, no, that's just how the reptilians control you. But most people in North America wouldn't find the idea of, you know, not pooping your pants is a good thing to do. A that's controversial true. thought. That doesn't come naturally to a human being. We learned that. We're taught that. Hmm. That's very true. Mm-hmm. Um, like, where was it? There was. There's actually a record that I once read. I think 
on Reddit, um, about it was a Roman senator. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about the, that he would have um, visitors that were like Vandals, if I remember right. Vandals or Visigoths, one of them. Anyway, the, you basically the Europeans. The Europeans would come and stay at his place. And they had a horrible problem because they were because these uh, these guys had no concept of household manners because mm-hmm. they'd never been taught that. So they were literally just pooping everywhere. They were pissing in every corner. They had <laughs> they were doing all these things because they'd grown up in a relatively rough and ready woodland society, basically. Mm-hmm. And so they were suddenly in these Rome manor houses and they had no idea how to behave. Because mm-hmm. they weren't "quote unquote" civilized; they were barbarians, after all. <laughs> yep, and then that gets at part of the problem that you run into is because a lot of this is so core to how we think. Mm-hmm. We're not really good at deconstructing it for ourselves and realizing it can be different. And when we're confronted with other things, it just seems outright wrong. Right. And some cultures heavily imply, Japanese, for example, that there's a right way to do everything. Yeah. (laughs) There is only the right way and the wrong way to do things in Japan. There are no other ways. Well, it's like that everywhere, though, except they don't... Like, Japan tends to be very upfront about Mm, it. (laughs) Very true. Very, very true, yeah. You are wearing your hair wrong. You know, they're... Whereas here in North America, we have them, too... But we like to, because we espouse the idea of the rugged individual, mm-hmm. we like to not make it seem like it's it's an absolute rule. Mm-hmm. But we have them. And we have a bunch because, again, North America is big enough that ASUS, it's not a monolithic thing. Like Canada and the States are different. Yep. Um, Toronto and the rest of Ontario is different. Uh, Fredericton is different from like uh, Milk River, Alberta. Like there, there's enough of a similarity because we wrap ourselves around this idea of say Canada, mm-hmm. and we're taught from from a young age kind of what that means. We taught like a couple of different languages that that helps pull you in too, mm-hmm. because language forms the basis of thought. Yes, it does. And. Even then, you're 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 going to run into some some differences, but I like like we were getting at. Almost universally, we like to not say it's an absolute rule. It'll mm-hmm. be a suggestion, or what you'll hear most often is, "Well, that's just how it's done." Right. That's just how it done means we're enforcing this with peer pressure. You damn well better get on board. Yep, that's what it means. Yeah, exactly. That's the way we've always done it. That's the way we're going to keep doing it. Now shut your mouth and keep, and do it. Yeah, because that's one of the big ironies that I, that, that I find is I got a number of hardcore libertarian friends who will mm-hmm. self-identify as libertarian. And it's amazing for a philosophy that espouses total individual freedom. How many things you just can't do because that's wrong. Can you give me some examples? Uh, God forbid, don't be a hippie. My friends are mostly uh, hardcore right-wing libertarians. Right. And that's are the, there left-wing libertarians? Yeah, hippies. Oh, Just well, yeah, that's true. Cross, <laughs> yeah. out, cross out shotgun and write in weed, and basically they're the same fucking people. They don't realize it, which I find ironic and funny and sad all at the same time. 
but again, it's that idea that even for 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 that for that idea mm-hmm. of of espousing total freedom, you look right. at like the right wing libertarians and the uh, the the left wing hippies. First, say it's all about freedom, man. There's so many things that I, neither one wants you to do. And again, it's it's because it gets to that idea of human beings. We tend to be pack animals, and proximity mm-hmm. is an issue. Yeah, that just by us being together in a same location, we have to hash out some kind of rules. We have to have some kind of system for us to work together, and that's what you see happens. Like sometimes it'll start on a more impromptu level, like our, mm-hmm. our hippie and libertarian friends, and then it gets codified. And then, like we've been saying, the problem of the post-internet age is that, and then somebody will sell it back to you, at which point there'll be a very clearly defined set of rules. Yes, yes, it's true. Buy our brand of t-shirts, or else you're a goddamn communist. And it it kind of perpetuates that that weird idea, and it's, it's that weird kind of, kind of anarchist lie. Mm Mm-hmm. That you know, I'm the complete free individual, even though I'm I'm not. And by espousing so loudly what an individual I am, I'm probably proving that I'm not. Right. It's it's okay. like life Life of Brian, one of the all time greatest movie scenes. Hmm. Uh, you ever see Life of Brian? I have. It's been a while though. So why don't you lay out the scene? It's the one where like all the people follow him home because they think he's the savior. Mm-hmm. And he's got like hundreds of people outside his house. He's like, "You don't need me. You're all individuals." And they're all, "We are all individuals, except for the one guy in the back." I'm not. <laughs> right. It it's funny because it's true. Because even the people that profess to be the rugged individual are mm-hmm. still communal creatures. Right. Even if you're the Unabomber. The Unabomber is a communal creature. He's, he's an antisocial communal creature, but he did things. He left notes. He connected to society, mostly through explosive packages. But even then, mm-hmm. he had that need to connect. He had that need to have some kind of interaction with the people at large. Doesn't that apply to many serial killers who leave notes? It, it does, and what you're seeing is it gets into that, again, that question of leader and follower. Mm-hmm. They always say that with, like, any kind of serial killer, that it's about control. It's about getting control, and that's why they'll taunt the cops, because they want to show that I'm better than you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That they're the ones taking control of the situation. Now, it's not in a designated leader kind of way. Mm-hmm. But it taps into this idea that a lot of people think that leadership and being in charge is the same thing as self-actualization. As being your true self. As being, like, the leader. Well, that's how it is in media, right? Exactly. And this, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, excuse me. Um, that's how it is in media, right? I mean... In look at every story is the same story as Jack would say the hero's journey. The mm-hmm. hero goes out a, a meek, mild child and usually unsure of themselves and everything goes out, self actualizes by discovering their true self, becomes a leader who everyone loves and respects by the end. 
Yeah, what? The hero's That's journey. the story media always tells us. Yeah, because the hero's journey, too, it's that idea that he always brings something back. Right. And that's, that's, what, that's what makes him the leader, is that he makes the discovery or takes command. And it's, it's the idea, uh, in a modern age, you could use the term PC and NPC. Mm-hmm. That the player characters are the main characters. They're invariably the leader because they're somehow superior to the non-player characters who are more generic right. and and mm-hmm. and not effective. And you're right. That's that's what leadership is presented as. And it goes way back to your early question about um, what makes a good leader. Mm-hmm. Is I would say partly how much you fall for that. <laughs> Fall for it in what way? Uh, the idea that being the boss is the ultimate actualization of self. Okay. So the degree to which you believe that by being in charge, that's the that's you in your best possible form. That's the best possible version of you. Yeah, because it's, it's that idea that I can now be me because I'm not under the thumb of authority. Right. You're no longer a follower. You are now a leader because you're not following anyone else except for your heart and the North Star. Or what I think is right or or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. uh, The vampire game. There's a quote in the venture book Mm -hmm. that I really think is, is, is true. And it kind of, it ties in with this. And it was, um, as they put it, for most people, freedom means freedom from responsibility. Right. But, but that's not true. True freedom is the freedom to follow your own agenda. Mm-hmm. And I think the problem is for most people, their own agenda is to just not have to do things. <laughs> Going back to that earlier bit about humans being inherently lazy. Yeah. Like most of us, we're not working towards any kind of goal we just sort of exist and i think mm-hmm. that that's why for most people the idea of having kids is seen as the pinnacle of existence because number one you're doing something that's going to last in theory longer than you right that's so true you're making an impact and number two uh kids are the goal that direct themselves because you don't have to be a self-starter mm-hmm. to, to raise a kid like the kid will let you know when it's hungry or bored or or pooped itself so you can again pass on those good civic values of don't poop your pants it's 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 disturbing mm-hmm. and that's again why people will look at that and discount something like say it's not about producing a great opera or a novel or anything because those require self motivation mm-hmm. and that's again part of that idea of where people n- don't understand that being the guy in charge doesn't just mean everybody has to do what you tell them. Mm-hmm. Because most people's goal isn't to do something or erect something or create something. It's just to exist. So what you're saying is, for most people, it's about freedom from. But for a true leader, it's actually about freedom too. It can be, or or a true leader, it can also be obligation. That's true. Okay, that's true. Because people who aren't leaders don't understand the stresses associated with being a leader. 
No, they see the perks, but they don't see the um, requirements. They don't see the responsibilities that come with it. Yep. No, that makes total sense. That's that's definitely true for teachers. Teachers have a huge amount of responsibilities and things that they have to do. But most people just say, oh, teachers, you know, they just teach out of the book and then they get their summers off. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, you know what a good example of this is? Oh, what? Uh, if you ever watch any of those shows where your business sucks and some guy comes in and yells at you for an hour and then all of a sudden your business is awesome. Oh, like Kitchen Nightmares. Yes. Yeah, there's like a bunch of them. There's always, almost always a scene halfway through where you find out that the, the, the company owner hired like their friends or family mm-hmm. and their friends and family are walking all over them. Yep. Yep. And and the person who comes in to scream at you to fix your business always says, are you running a charity or are you a business person? And then mm-hmm. they, they tearfully fire like their best friend and blah, blah, blah. It's cheesy, but that's kind of part of, again, being what the, the leader is, is that you have these mm-hmm. obligations. Yes. Oh, yeah. If you want to succeed, you have to make sure there's something greater that you're in charge of and the individual parts are not that important, even if they're your family members or best friend. Yep, because what you're looking at there is you're putting your interests mm-hmm. aside for the sake of whatever your the goal is. Right, exactly. And, that, and like I say, that's something a lot of people who aren't ever in charge of anything don't understand. And I think that's where a lot of crappy parents come from because they think... Having kids and being the parent means that now I have somebody to make do chores and lord it over. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why people had many kids back in the old days, right? That you were producing your own workforce, your own servants. Well, or even if, if it wasn't exactly servant, which a lot of times, let's be honest, it was. It usually it, was, dude. It would be for the family business, that if I was a that's farmer... A- Mm-hmm. I, I needed sons to work the field and daughters to, to do the uh, cooking and sewing. Exactly. I can only do this for so long. It's hard work. Therefore, I need those kids to help me survive as I get older. Yep. It's just basic logic. And that's why they used to have these gigantic families. Because the more kids you had, the more likely that some of them were going to reach adulthood and take care <laughs> of your ass. It It's true. And then one of the reasons you didn't see a lot of, like... Loving your kids is a relatively new concept. Very new. And and it's in part because you couldn't, because like you said, a lot of them just aren't going to make it that far, so why get attached? Very true. And if I have a bunch of them, I'm having kids to a specific end. Like, like, like you say, I need them as servants. I need them as workers. So being the parent is more military than familial. Right. Absolutely. No, no. You, as you said earlier, it's the family business and you're producing workers for the family business. Yep. And Dan Carlin, if I remember right, on his Hardcore History podcast, did a whole episode about this, about how children were treated differently through the ages. It's a fascinating listen. It's a fascinating listen. I'll put it in the show notes. But short version is, yeah, as you said, the concept of children as these Well, I mean, people did love their kids. They honestly did. But there was kind of a greater level of detachment in the old days. And and there had to be. And in fact, one could make an argument that that detachment was even present in um, our generation. 
because think about this. Parents of our generation would literally just, you know, we'd have like 10-year-olds go out the door and basically it's like, yeah, I'll see you tonight, mom. And you had no idea where your kids were. They just kind of disappeared for the day. 10, 11-year-olds, whatever, especially on weekends, you know, unless unless there was some family event occurring, the kid went out the door and they went off with other kids and you had no idea whose basement they were in. You had no idea what they were up to. They're all, they were doing all kinds of crap. Sometimes they were doing really dangerous stuff. No. Um, yeah, that, not that I was doing really dangerous stuff. Yeah, I was. I did totally dangerous stuff. What am I saying? I did totally dangerous stuff that would probably make my parents blanch if they knew half of what I did when I was a kid. And... They, but they never knew, right? And we, so parents, they came from a generation where my parents are super loving and super caring, but that's just how it was. They were busy with work and their lives and things like that. And so they had to give me a certain amount of autonomy at a young age. And that's true, I think, for most of our generation. Yeah, I, th I think the idea about not doing that is what's mm -hmm. newer. Yeah. Because if, if, even if you look like through through literature, going back to see like, Huck Finn or even like the Hardy Boys and that. Mm -hmm. These were kids doing like, like they were just wandering the countryside. I mean. It, but that's it, what kids did back then. Cause that's, that was your form of entertainment for, remember there was no TV, there were no video games. There was nothing to keep them. Well, for our generation, there was TV, but my point for most of human history, the kids form main form of entertainment. If they weren't being worked to death mm -hmm. um, was wandering the countryside. That was yep. pretty much it. I think it's when you get to the late 80s going into the 90s that you really got, like, the idea of stranger danger is where you really yeah. saw that idea of not letting the kids wander. And you know, I think some of it's kind of a side effect of the fact that we're having less kids. Each kid has become more and more precious. And so a lot of people only have, like, one, maybe two kids these days. So those kids are pretty darn precious. They're a huge investment of resources. And you absolutely want to make sure that they're well taken care of because you do not want anything to happen to them. It Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I think part of it, too, if you've is... you've got 11 kids, okay, you lose a few. Who cares? <laughs> Billy, yeah, he was annoying anyway. Yeah, it's probably more of a relief at that point. But... Exactly. But I think part of it, too, happens because you do get this idea. It kind of starts in the 70s. But when you get, like, the 24-hour news cycle, it takes off. When we get, like, the internet age, it takes off more... That idea that, like we say, people are always selling you your fear back. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, so when you get to the 50s, going into the 60s, you could let your kids wander because, like, child molesters was something that happened somewhere else. Right, that's true. You never heard about it unless it happened in your community. And even then, it was such a vile thing, it wouldn't get talked about much. Mm-hmm. You get to the 70s, we start to, uh, to fetishize this idea of crime run rampant. Mm -hmm. you get to the 80s you get 24-hour news that means like if somebody's diddling kids in the other side of the country we're going to hear about it planet well, which that, is the country yeah it that comes later because even in the 80s you wouldn't care if it was happening in in say like france because that was too far away and we thought they were all uppity anyway kind of thing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's true when you, when you get the internet and especially when you get post-internet with, like, say, smartphones, mm -hmm. you have, if, if you're so inclined, and many are, a constant barrage of molesters everywhere around the planet all the time. And it creates that idea that, 
oh my god, somebody's just hiding in the shrubs outside our porch, just waiting to inappropriately touch my beautiful child. Yep, that's exactly and, what it makes them think, yeah. And that idea gets sold to you constantly and that's why we have to make sure the democrats don't get elected or do get elected because they're the only ones that can stop this and why we have to like subscribe to 15 different alarm services and we have to like get a get a a locator put on little billy so we know where he is all the time and 15 Mm -hmm. nanny cams and blah 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 and it, it creates that attitude and that was why like i say even when we were kids that there my 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 situation was a little different from from mm-hmm. from most but even then we were told to be careful mm-hmm. of course. Our, when we were kids is when hitchhiking kind of went out of flavor right because you had a couple of like serial killers big name serial killers that were murdering hitchhikers but just prior to that like it's not until like say the late 70s that that's the thing and nowadays hitchhiking is just unheard of i'm not getting into a stranger's car unless i phone them on my phone mm-hmm. because then it's directed like if i uber them well then it feels like there's some kind of of control to this it's not well, you just have some... control of it right you you summoned them you chose to hop in that stranger's car <laughs> yeah it's it's not some random wacko even though it really is just some random wacko exactly anyone can be an uber driver yeah pretty much anyone <laughs> dun, dun, dun. even dawn no i well i could but you just show up in a you know, well, never mind. Anyway, so um, I, I have a couple of licenses. Just nobody wants me behind the wheel because I'm an exciting driver. <laughs> there we go. So yes, I, I, that's definitely true. That's definitely true. Um, going I, back to the idea, it's about control. It is, and I think this is one of the problems we have. That, and we've talked about this too. The idea that we've, for the last twenty years, we've been so pandered to. That we mm-hmm. see, all of us see ourselves as our own little leaders. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, big authority mm-hmm. that tries to, to, to bald face direct us, we tend to frown on. So that's why, like, we don't want the government telling us what to do. But we'll fall right in line for a charismatic leader who says what we want or a company that's selling us crap. We'll, we'll fall right, because it's that feeling that we chose to follow these people mm-hmm, exactly even though even we if didn't we were effectively tricked to do it yeah yeah basically or or it was it was sold to us mm-hmm. and that's where i think yeah you get that idea that for a long time hitchhiking was seen as as insane but we call it uber and now we have to pay for it well pff, right well you had to pay back in the 70s yeah, but we're not going to talk about how. It's just, cash, uh, grass, back, or back ass. In those, hmm? Cash, grass, or ass. That was... Cash, grass, or ass. There we go. <laughs> yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> nope, nope. I believe that, yeah, that's that's how it was supposed to be anyway. Yeah, and even then that was a t-shirt, so that was why everybody fell in line with that kind of thinking, in theory. Wow. There were, there were well, there were, there were rules about hitchhiking, and... At one point, I'm, there's actually a video I saw about this. Um, I think Cheddar did a video about this, about why hitchhiking fell out of favor. And it was interesting to see. They were talked about how how prevalent hitchhiking was at one point. Yeah. Like hitchhiking was super prevalent because, in fact, it was promoted by the government as a way to uh, save gas and save resources. <laughs> well, at one point it was because that was when they started the uh, highway system. 
Yes. And, and part of it was because they wanted people using the highways. Right, yeah. But, but they don't what, want people hiking along the highways. No, and you don't know ruin that. Uh, serial killers? No, before. What, what ruined the uh, hitchhiking thing for the government? For the government? Um, I'm not sure because they wanted soldiers to be able to get around. And it was common for soldiers to hitchhike home or things like that. I remember that. Um, okay, why? Well, because then dirty hippies started doing it. Oh, okay. Once those dirty hippies start doing it, it's a bad thing. Yeah, because if, if if you and, and it's it's true from a certain angle. Because if you think about pop culture, mm-hmm. uh, when you go to like say the forties, the fifties, you do you do see a lot of scene, scenes of that where it'll be like um, the soldier that just came back from his tour and he's walking down the freeway. Hey, where are you going, Mac? I'm seeing my brother and blah blah. Hop in, I'm going. To... And a lot of movies would start with that kind of thing, right? Oh, very common. Yeah, yeah. And then when you get to like the 60s, especially late 60s going into the 70s, the people hitchhiking were like the dirty hippies because they were didn't want jobs and couldn't afford a car like a decent person. Exactly. Or, or like the retrobates and, and stuff like that. That became the image that, you know, the dirty barefoot hippie with his guitar slung on his back and his headband and stuff. Like that became the image of it because mm-hmm. so many younger people were using this to get to the happening scenes as part of the counterculture. And then, like I said, that kind of ruined it for the man, man. Mm. <laughs> I think, oh, I wish I could remember. Cheddar talked about that. There was actually another reason though. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a reason why suddenly PSAs were everywhere about how hitchhiking was dangerous and you shouldn't do it, etc. Like they literally like were flooded with news stories. Now, some of it might've been the media in general, just kind of, you know, hooked on to the idea of it being dangerous and knew that that was uh, something they could scare people with and sell people. But I believe that there was actually some other motivation that was going on. I wish I could remember what it was. Ah. Okay. But there was actually something else going on there, why the government suddenly changed its mind. And it wasn't just because of hippies. There was <laughs> another reason. It may have been because, me, believe it or not, having people wandering along major highways is a really bad idea. Mm-hmm. you're going to get people getting hit you're going to get car accidents etc so that might have been part of it as well where they they didn't want people because for example here in canada where we are the 400 series highway you're not allowed to walk down that thing right if you're walking down the 400 series highway and a, and a uh, cop sees you they'll stop and they'll be what are you doing you're not because they don't want people getting hit they don't want people stopping cars they don't they they it's literally illegal, if I remember, to walk down that highway. Yep. Yeah, well, any of and expressways, it's illegal. Yeah, exactly. They do not want people on there because it's a hazard to everyone. And I think yeah. that might have been part of it. I think you're right. And then I think what ends up happening is um, it's that cultural drift. Right. Because, again, this it, 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 it ties in with kind of what we've been, we've been dancing around this all episode so far, that... Uh, the idea of propriety will change as the 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 overall view of things changes. Mm-hmm. And I think what you saw with the idea of hitchhiking was a lot of different things got caught up in it. Like I know the uh, mm-hmm. the 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 beatniks started it because that was they were notorious for for roaming. Mm-hmm. The the hippies codified that. Uh, I remember 
late 60s, early 70s, one of the running themes about why hitchhiking was bad, because by the 70s, people were doing it, but it was counterculture. Well, here, I actually looked it up here. Okay, so this okay. is from Wikipedia. Okay, decline. In 2011, Freakonomics Radio reviewed sparse data about hitchhiking and identified a decline in hitchhiking in the U.S. since the 1970s, which it attributed to a number of factors, including lower air travel costs due to deregulation, the presence of more money in the economy to pay for travel, more numerous and more reliable cars, and a lack of trust in strangers. Mm. Fear of hitchhiking is thought to have been spurred by movies such as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and a few real stories of imperiled passengers, notably the kidnapping of Colleen Stan in California. Okay. Um, Julian Portis points out that the rise of faster highways, such as freeways, motorways, and expressways, has made hitchhiking more difficult. He adds, the real danger of hitchhiking has most likely remained co- relatively constant, but the general perception of this danger has increased. Our national tolerance for danger has gone down. Things that we previously saw as reasonably safe suddenly appeared imminently threatening. This trend is not just isolated to the world of hitchhiking, it has become a pernicious artifact throughout the American cultural consciousness. Yeah. So, there we go. Um, there are, of course, still hitchhiking communities, um, and there are still lot, actually a great number of people who hitchhike, and in some countries it's still very popular. Yeah, just not here, because again, it, it kind of, it got... Like I say, it got kind of co-opted by the by the mm-hmm. mid late seventies. Yep, because that was that was how a lot of yeah the the the, the Irish the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, I could see that, but because that idea of 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 just wandering became like mm-hmm. a bad a bad concept. Exactly. Yeah, and hitchhiking specifically, I can't remember the movie. It was an, a seventies movie that. The, the this the girls hitchhiking and this guy picks her up. You need a lift and the riff track comment was, Well, I was planning to be hobo murdered today, so sure. <laughs> and and that's the attitude. I remember a bunch of PSAs like when I was a kid that were warning mm-hmm. against hitchhiking because specifically that was how the gays would get you. Right. And that became a trope after a bit and, and yeah, and right. again it, it just it 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 drifted into that realm of bad thing to do. Yeah, yeah. And it was also, of course, d- dangerous for the drivers as well. Because well, the hitchhikers could drive, you know, they could assault you, they could rob you, even kill you. You yeah. never knew what you, you never knew who you were picking up. Yep. And it goes along with that general lack of trust in other people in society as well in North America. Yeah. I don't know this for sure, but I suspect that trust in our fellow pe- humans has gone down greatly in the last hundred years in North America. Oh, in the last 50. And again, I, I, th- th- I was reading something about that too. Let me look, quickly look that up. Um... It's, it's in part because the idea of the other, mm-hmm. it, it's gained more prevalence. There's more of the other. Because like we say, because people will sell you your own fear back to you, right? And that's how they do right. it. Uh, let's see. Trust is collapsing in America. Let's see if they have uh, any statistics. Well, I mean, just in general, look at that poor robot. Which poor robot? The the hitchhiking robot. Oh, the hitchbot. That got murdered. It did? Yeah, yeah. The, uh, it, it, it disappeared for a bit and they found it. I think they actually had uh, camera footage mm-hmm. that some guy just beat the shit out of it. Oh, my God. That poor robot. <laughs> That's how the uprising starts. 
So United States, interpersonal trust attitudes. Here we go. In 1972, 46% uh, of people said most people can be trusted. Okay, in the United States. This is a U.S. General Survey. Okay. Mm. Um, in 1985, that actually went up to almost 50%. Hmm. Probably following the release of Rambo, First Blood Part 2. <laughs> um, thank God I'm American. All right. However, by uh, 2014, that was down to uh, about 30.78%. Uh, huh. And... Unfortunately, this chart only goes, the found, chart I found only goes up to 2014, but that shows, yeah, there was a, almost definitely at least a 16% drop in trust over between 1972 and 2014. But, but generally speaking, yeah, people, there, there's been a clear long-term um, decline in social trust. Yeah. There's no question on that. And it's well, been going on for decades. Yeah, again, I'd say probably since like the 80s or the 90s, really. Because, again, this is where you, you think about it. Mm -hmm. Like, even when we were kids, remember? A stranger is just a friend you haven't met yet. Yep, that's true. And then you get to the early 90s, and all the PSAs are like, He's going to molest you! Run! Hide! Call exactly. an adult! But you can't trust an adult! Lock yourself in your house! Exactly. And, again, it's, 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 it's because it's, it's... And I think this, in a weird way, kind of loops back in to, okay. to the core conversation. Because... It's mm -hmm. that it's that idea that we're being sold our outrage back and the person who's doing the best job of it, we will acknowledge as an authority and therefore a kind of leader. And because of that, this is why getting you all angry and afraid of other people and other groups of people is so popular nowadays. It's always been popular, Don. That's not really new. Yeah, but the, 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 the degree of which you can do it and the degree to which um, it picks at the nits, I guess, because it, it, it's, it's the weaponized nerd rage. Mm -hmm. It's that idea that, you know, we can take something small and innocuous that shows up in like a TV show. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's not a small innocuous thing. It's the ultimate end of the world that they are pushing on us in their attempt to ruin everything good, whoever you you've want been, they to be. You've been on YouTube, sir. Oh God, I've just you partake of any media. You can't, you don't not see this. This is why I say I don't look yeah. up, don't look or up Twitter. trust and shit. Yeah, or anything, just anything at all. Like, oh my God, it amazes me that. How many things just generate outrage? And how people will just run with that outrage. Because, again, part of it's you want to believe it. Because mm -hmm. it satisfies your worldview and makes you special. Because you know something the sheeple don't. And then mm -hmm. part of it is we have these quote-unquote thought leaders that will cultivate that mm -hmm. in, in order to, to, to gain more followers. And then it goes with that idea of what makes people shitty leaders because a lot of people are just cultivating this for the sake of likes or views or something that makes them feel warm and special but doesn't contribute anything it's not following any greater goal other than you know i'm awesome and it causes a lot of damage Mm-hmm. okay i can totally see that well I, but again it but it's it's the banality of evil, right? Like it's, exactly, it's, it's all these people doing their own small selfish actions, which lead 
altogether to produce horrible results in the end. Yeah, it's it's. I would use the phrase it's it's a kind of devil's bargain. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good one. Yes. Okay. That it's it's that idea that, um. I'm taught to think that this was my idea by the people that are actually pulling my strings. Therefore, I'll run with it as far as they want me to because it makes me feel special. Right. Okay. Well, it also saves you having to do the thinking. Well, and it and that's part of it. And this is where it goes back to the idea of leadership as self-actualization. Mm-hmm. It's that idea that what people want to actualize is not actually doing anything. going back to the earlier statement so what they're really trying to accomplish is freedom from having to do anything yeah and then that's why we'll divide ourselves up into neat little packets mm-hmm. because it's just that much easier and this is why we'll give in to somebody who's obviously not a good leader mm-hmm. because it's just easier and it gives us some warm fuzzies and that's kind of what you know it seems like all of media is based around these days a lot of it, yeah, definitely a lot of it. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, so maybe we should take a look at some examples of uh, leaders in like popular culture. How about that? Okay. Okay. Um, do you have any that you'd like to talk about? I think the one big example that illustrates kind of a difference in good leadership would be the ever-popular, and here's where the internet blows up, Kirk versus Picard. Interesting. Okay, why? Well, because I think they both, they're both effective leaders in that, uh, number one, they can both achieve a goal. Right. And both of them have an interest in their followers. Mm-hmm. That it's not even, even you know, egomaniac Kirk the mission isn't all about Kirk. He'll actually work to save crewmen's lives and he doesn't spend them callously kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But Makes the, sense. The difference therein, and this is something that you'll see in how leadership is portrayed um, in entertainment based on what's going on at the time, is that Kirk represents, again, that ideal of rugged individual. Mm-hmm. That he doesn't necessarily follow the rules he he kind of does what he wants he's not as restricted as somebody else would be like prime directive what's that ha ha kind of thing right yeah but if you watch the shows he's doing it for not for himself but always for a greater ideal and that was kind right. of the, the moral of the original track and what i don't like about a lot of the newer ones mm-hmm especially say the movies is that the idea of Trek was what one was human mm-hmm. that it wasn't that you were smarter or sneakier or a better plan. Generally what it was, it was that, that human warmth, that human connection mm-hmm. that that's in some capacity, what usually won the day. Mm-hmm. And Kirk kind of becomes a manifestation of that because he's prizing the human over the organization. Right. Makes that sense. He, He's valuing individual lives over a greater ideal. Yes, definitely. Well, when you get to Picard, Picard is portrayed as an effective leader, Mm -hmm. but he's the other side because Picard follows the rules. Mm -hmm. He adheres to, to 
to to the ideals of of say Starfleet. Mm-hmm. He doesn't try to bend things. There's lots of episodes where he'll reprimand people for trying to bend the rules or suggesting something. Mm-hmm. He'll do it by finding a way of doing it within the system. Like he believes in the system. He believes in the collective over the individual. Yes, definitely. Um, case in point, one of the the, the subplots from the very beginning was that it was um it was uh Beverly Crusher's husband wasn't it he died because of Picard yes yeah yeah Picard gave the order that resulted in him dying mm-hmm. it wasn't Picard's fault but in but indirectly he had a hand in his in uh Jack Crusher's death mm-hmm. and i believe that uh he was actually also his best friend if i remember right yeah it, it's something like that like yeah. they they painted that it was very difficult but it's the opposite of the Kirk thing that it's meant to put that idea that he follows the rules and adheres to the greater ideal above the value mm-hmm. of the individual. Right. Yeah, that's true. Very true. Mm-hmm. But they're both effective leaders. They're just different kinds of leaders. Interesting. And I would argue that because Star Trek comes out in the sixties, that's why the individualist Kirk was popular. Mm-hmm. And because Next Generation comes out in the 80s, Mm -hmm. where at a time, up until near the end of the 80s anyway, people people trusted authority Mm -hmm. that that was why somebody like Picard was seen as... as, A great leader. Yeah. Yeah. And and it was that ideal that was that was perpetuated, that idea that, again, you could have collective over individual. There was value in that. Mm Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that they both did Mm -hmm. that you don't see in a lot of leaders in entertainment is they made a point of showing how leadership stressed both of them. Right. Yes. Like there, there, there's more than a few episodes, even with again, individualist Kirk, there's, there's like the episode where they explain the reason he could never love a woman because his true love is the ship. (laughs) That that it's that not literally. I hope not. But what <laughs> hopes? Yeah. But it's that idea that be, the the ship, that idea of the ship and its crew and its mission. Mm-hmm. That's what's predominant in 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 his heart. And there's even there's episodes. Mm-hmm. There's another one where where he goes off on McCoy because McCoy is trying to tell him to step back, and he's saying, "I can't. These we have three hundred people that depend on me. I can't relax." Mm-hmm. And. Picard they showed that with Picard all the time that there would be different decisions he'd have to make that it would be difficult for him Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. definitely yeah yeah there were lots of different decisions that were difficult Um, most of them involved Captain Picard day Uh, (laughs) and and deciding which which child's painting was the correct one yep and Captain Picard, Picard day is actually canon now I know it is yeah they they did that on uh oh on uh lower decks. I th- I haven't gotten to the most recent episode, so I must have missed that. Okay, I'll it's, get to it. It's it's just a throwaway throwaway line. It's like you're like all hyped up today. Yeah, I'm more hyped up than a rogue Q on Picard Day. <laughs> <laughs> a rogue Q on Picard Day. That's yeah, a pretty it's, good it's, line. It's something to that effect, and yeah, it it's it makes it official, but. But yeah, there was yeah. All, there were all kinds of episodes like that where what the episode was, it would be Picard or even Riker 
weighing mm-hmm. over some kind of heavy decision. Right. Well, that was part of the drama of the show, right? That was mm-hmm. part of them dealing the you know the characters that were in the focus of the episode would usually have to deal with some difficult decisions. That's you know, that's drama. That's the way it worked. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. You're right. They did a good job with that often, especially some characters more than others. But but generally with Picard, they did a fairly good job. That's true. Yeah, because it's. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I was just thinking. I always wonder what it would have been like. Because you realize that if if it had a if Next Gen had come out in the seventies, it would have been Star Trek Phase Two, right? And it would have been effectively the same show or, or a very similar show, but it would have been Kirk in charge instead, except he'd be Admiral Kirk, the older Kirk, and you would have had the younger William Decker character. Right. We of course saw the pilot for Phase Two. It was called Star Trek: The Motionless Picture. I mean, motion picture. <laughs> sorry. Um, Sorry, yeah, I know. Actually, I have a fond spot for that movie. I really do. So I, I but I, but you know, I remember that nickname from from a long time ago. Star Trek: The Motionless Picture, uh, because boy, does it have a lot of scenes of nothing happening. They're, but they're very pretty scenes of nothing happening. But yeah, anyway. Um, sorry, sorry, sorry. Anyway, um, but you can see in that movie that the Kirk was still very hands on. And he mm. would have been a very different leader, more like the 1970s. Hmm. I think he would have been halfway in between. Like if they'd done Star Trek Phase 2, he probably would have been somewhere in between. He would have been, more, again, some of that cowboy diplomacy, but at the same time being an admiral and being in charge of more and being more seasoned. Hopefully they would have written him a little more like Picard, where he would have taken things a little mm. more seriously and followed the rules more. But who knows, right? Well, they... You never know with that character. I think you're right because for for two things, mm-hmm. one is that uh, Roddenberry was still pretty much in charge when the Next Generation started. Yes, he was. Yeah, and two is watching the original series a few years ago. I noticed because because Roddenberry did time in the military. Yes, he did. As our in the in the Air Force, I believe. Mm-hmm. And you can see it because there's a lot of little things that characters do in the original Star Trek. Mm-hmm. that really do kind of demonstrate a military rank structure that you don't see in other shows. Because it's pretty rare at this point that the writers actually did time in the military. Well, not, anymore. Mean, not hmm? anymore after the last couple of wars we had. But oh, That's true. For, Although, from what I know, though, know a lot of Hollywood screenwriters, a lot of them, you know, their life experience was taking a course in life experience at university, <laughs> and then they... Then they managed to do an internship in at a studio, usually as a script reader. And if they're lucky, their notes are clever enough that they get bumped up to, uh, you know, they get hired eventually to be a script writer and uh, or work their way up or something like that. But most of the people that end up in writer's rooms are not people who have gone out and done adventuring stuff, at least Maybe maybe I'm wrong. I, you know, it's not like I spend a lot of time in Hollywood writers' rooms, but from what I know of them, it doesn't seem that way. It seems right. like they're mostly people who have managed to work their way in by spending their time in the system. Like their life experience is within the within the entertainment industry for the most part. Yeah. Whereas sense. Roddenberry and his whole generation had to march off to World War II, so you you had a whole generation where they all did service. Mm-hmm. To one degree or another, I'm not saying there are no um, uh, script writers in Hollywood or TV writers who have don't who have life 
you know, don't have life experience. Of course, there must be some of them, but I don't think most of them do. I think that it's probably a, uh, their life experience is watching movies and, um, writing other people, writing scripts and reading other people's scripts, etc. And that's one of the reasons why I think that we've lost so much of, uh, the depth and even the humanness of entertainment. Mm-hmm. Like you talk about how, you know, Star Trek, the original series, had so much, had uh, those little things like the subtle rank things, for example, and such, or how Kirk represented the idea of defeating people, defeating the enemy with warmth. I don't think they could really do that anymore, because I don't think that would really occur to most writers at this point, because they're just making nth generation copies of what they learned work, you know, the last generation or so. Like, it's... So much of it is really just written by people who their life experience is reading other experiences and reading novels and playing video games, etc., etc. That's totally my personal opinion. I may be, again, completely wrong, but it's something I've noticed that plots and stories and such, especially modern writing, have become shallower and shallower. Like this yeah. is one of the reasons why every season to go keep keep on the Trek theme, every season of uh, the new Star Trek Discovery or Picard has to involve a universe universe ending or Federation ending threat, mm-hmm. and the whole season is just about them running around to defeat some like you know threat that's going to kill everyone or right. destroy everyone or so. It's like because they have no ability to do something personal anymore. They don't seem to have that or desire to do anything personal. In fact, everything's very shallow. Everything's very simple. Yeah, a part of that too, though, is is getting with what we were talking about way, way, way at the beginning of this. Mm-hmm. Is because things are done for an international market. There's that too, yes. Yeah, you want all of your, your values to be as simple as possible so that they translate readily across like different cultures. That is true. That is true. But I, I, I do think you're right, because it, it's, it's, again, specifically talking about leadership. Mm-hmm. It goes with that idea that you can see how a lot of things, the leader isn't really a good leader, they're a psychopath. And it's because, again, that's what people think being a leader is. Being a psychopath who bullies people around and uh, yeah. tells people what to do. Yeah, because it's, in real life, sociopaths have a lot of traits. Sociopaths, psychopaths, depending on the uh, the, the, the psychopathy. Well, mm-hmm. and what specific type flavor of, of whack job, I'm going to say, just in the colloquial, you're mm-hmm. dealing with, have a lot of traits that make them seem like good leaders and can facilitate good leadership if they have other things. Because, like, say, sociopaths are really good at fitting in. Mm-hmm. Because they don't feel things, so they get good at mimicking human activity, like warmth and such. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they're good at making it look like they pay attention. Um, they'll have, because they, they don't have as much of a conscience or as much empathy, they're good, better at making decisions, especially difficult ones. Because ultimately they don't care. Yeah, that, that they're, they're it, it, I'll order my troops to their death. Because it, it doesn't matter. I'll get more. Like, as long as I proliferate, that's the key. Mm-hmm. And again, it's it's the sort of thing, in the long term, it's bad because that kind of selfishness 
it goes back to what we are saying people think leadership is, and that's self-actualization. Mm-hmm. Whereas true leadership is motivating people towards an end. And if that end is just me, that falls apart once people get used to your bullshit kind of thing. Right. But it, 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 it's also the same thing, like, to talk about the military thing. It's the same thing that you see where I think you're right that a lot of people who write things don't have personal experience or any kind of understanding because you get the stereotype of the sergeant that gets in your face and constantly screams in that. Mm-hmm. In real life, that's only on course. Well, it became a standard cliche, I believe, right after uh, Full Metal Jacket, I think it was. Yeah. Well, yeah, because the, oh, I can't remember his name, but yeah, the guy who did that, did he was so fantastic. Uh, Lee Emery something. Lee Emery, yeah. Because he was an yeah. actual, he was an actual drill sergeant. Yes, yes, he was. A very good one. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, but people, and, and you're right, that's the stereotype. And if you don't have any experience with, say, the military, mm-hmm. you don't realize that when you're on course, you have, you keep everybody stressed because you want to see how they deal with huge levels of stress because that's what's going to happen when you send them anywhere to do army stuff. Mm-hmm. So you're constantly screaming at them. You don't let them sleep. As, as the easy way to explain is your first year in the army, mm-hmm. everybody hates you and everything you do is wrong. Just accept that. That's how it is. Right. But once you, you pass, you prove yourself, you become part of the troop. On your command courses, they tell you, don't keep constantly screaming at your troops. Mm-hmm. Like in real life... You would not pull the drill sergeant routine on somebody during regular operations unless they fucked up really bad. Right, yeah. Because it, what happens is, number one, it makes them nervous, and nervous troops are ineffective. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, it makes them hate you, and they'll push you off a cliff or leave you somewhere. <laughs> right. Not that I would ever partake in something like that, but I've heard. Um, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And... And number three, and the funniest one that you don't realize is they'll get used to it. They'll if just ignore it. Yeah, it, 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 it becomes useless. You're tiring yourself out. Whereas if you're normally pretty calm and understanding and you blow up at somebody, they know that they did something terribly wrong. It's effective. Mm-hmm. Okay. Makes sense. That makes total sense. Yeah. But again, it's it's that idea that when you see like a lot of leaders and things, that's how they're mm-hmm. portrayed. And not even just military. You'll see like that's the stereotypical corporate boss. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, how long has Mr. Dithers been harassing Dagwood, you know? <laughs> right. And we have For real a very life long time. Yeah, we have real life examples of people who do that. Usually they have tell all books written about them or they're found dead in their car with a bunch of mysterious bullet wounds. Eventually, yes. Mm-hmm. That's true. No, no, I I'm I'm with you. So that so that kind of leadership is not very effective, but people think it is because that's how Hollywood portrays it. Yeah, and and it ties in again with that idea that if I'm the boss, that doesn't mean I have responsibility to, to our, our end. That means I get to mm-hmm. push everybody else around and nobody can push me around. Right. No, that makes total sense. And you, you see it all the time in, in stuff. And sometimes it's played for comedic value. Mm-hmm. Like that's the stereotypical rotten boss is meant to play on that idea of, you know, your boss sucks. Because everybody, everybody who's a subordinate at some time gets fed up with it. Mm-hmm. 
it's a matter of whether or not you accept that this is what happens or you stew about it or you seek promotion yourself or maybe you go, well, maybe they're right. I, I was kind of bad doing that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it plays into that. But yeah, it becomes, it goes from being, being a convention to a trope in a hurry. Right. And especially new and inexperienced writers who their only life experience is really watching other movies and things like that think oh that's how it's done and then we get tropes yep it just get turns into tropes and conventions where we you just keep seeing it over and over and over again and so they get the wrong idea what a leader is and the problem is is that so much entertainment these days is directed towards uh power fantasies basically yeah which are ultimately about i'm the biggest strongest guy so i get to be an asshole and do whatever i want or yep. the female equivalent um and, I believe I believe asshole is gender neutral. Oh, that's true. That's very true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so you're right. Asshole is definitely gender neutral. <laughs> that's one of the nice things about it. it. Doesn't matter what genitalia you have, you can still be an asshole. Yep. Um, uh, although we are perhaps offending the people who have had um, colitis. Is it no, not colitis. Colostomy. Uh, what's the hmm? Uh, they the, they have a colostomy. Yeah, there we go. Those, yeah. those who unfortunately have, are no longer able to use their assholes. But even if you can't use your asshole, you can still be an asshole. Anyway. That's true. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Anyway. <laughs> so, what was I about to say? Um, <laughs> now I've lost it. Oh, the por- portrayal of, of uh, power. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right, right. So, therefore, um, we see more and more of exactly what you're talking about, who, about characters especially you see this in uh you know teen entertainment especially for guys like you know light novels and uh you know the chinese stuff and all that they're all about self-actualization being the 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 guy who can beat anyone else up and gets to do whatever they want Mm -hmm. and which usually involves um building as big a harem as you possibly can and kicking absolute butt Mm-hmm. And and literally wiping out the families and extended extended clan of anyone who even <laughs> looks at you wrong, because well, they're ultimate power fantasies. And hearing the lamentations of their women. That's exactly right. There's a reason why that line became incredibly <laughs> famous. Yeah, there's a Full female. Man, what is best in life? Yes. <laughs> there's a female version of that too, though. Which is? Well, that's what all those like horrible housewife shows are. Pretty much, it's the fightness. It's the fight to see who's queen bitch, and that's people like tune in to like it. It, it they tune in to to point a finger and say I'm better than that, and they tune in to identify with. I wish I could get away with that. I, there's a whole lot of that, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the it's the same idea. There's all kinds of different flavors of that. Oh yeah, totally. There's many different kinds of flavors and permutations. Um, and it's not just modern stuff, of course. I mean, uh, entertainment's been kind of like that right from the beginning, but it's become more and more uh, formalized, I guess you could say, where we're getting more and more of the same formula over and over and over again. Slightly different flavors of it, but it's still baby food. Yeah, I think because we're exposed to more and more like media and entertainment in general. Mm, true. That it follows. Because you, you know what a good example what kind of good explanation of the difference of what it means to be the boss between the uh, the leader and the follower is in real life? Okay, what? S&M. 
Okay, how? <laughs> well, because people can't understand why would you want to be the, uh, the the supplicant in 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 that kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. But you find there's all kinds of rich and powerful people who are perfectly willing to pay some leather-clad woman to like tell them how much they suck, how small their dick is, and beat them with a stick. Mm-hmm. And it's because what happens for for the for for the people who get into that especially if you're if you're powerful and influential being mm-hmm. on the receiving end alleviates you of all responsibility it's total freedom it is and that's why i just do what mistress tells me and occasionally she rewards me with letting me touch myself while she watches but it's that idea that yeah you have and it's not, it's total freedom because you have no freedom. You have no say in, in except if you're smart, you you make sure that there's a safe word and it's mm-hmm. something you're not going to forget because that leads to problems. But yeah, it, it's, right. it's that idea. That's why people like being like restrained and gimped up and, and insulted and, and beaten and made to stay in the cage and stuff. Because yeah, it, it's, you don't have, if, if you spend your day making heavy choices that have, people's lives and, and 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 livelihoods in the balance yeah this is relaxing this is fantastic you're not deciding anything you're just totally doing what you're told wow what freedom through not having any freedom yep whereas a lot of people who are not leaders mm-hmm. fantasize about being on the giving end Because it's total control of another person. It's totally being able to inflict yourself on another person. Wow. So those with control fantasize about having no control. And those with no control fantasize... Sorry. Those with no responsibility fantasize about having control. Mm -hmm. Huh. Well, that makes sense, actually. Everyone thinks the grass is greener on the other side. Well, it is, and it's the idea that when you're exposed to something in person, you get the bad parts, where if I'm just seeing the fantasy of it in the movie or the internet, I'm only mm-hmm. seeing, like, generally the good parts, as it were. Right. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So that's that's the appeal of, of that sort of thing, and like I say, it demonstrates that difference in attitude. Right, yeah. So everything in the end comes down to who comes down to your position and what you understand and what you don't understand and we always fantasize about being the one who doesn't have to have any responsibilities to do except anything except what they want to do yep in other words be a libertarian so join the libertarian folks and vote libertarian or be a hippie or be a hippie yeah that's true that works too because <laughs> it's it's funny when you talk about you know the, the 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 portrayal of the boss as an asshole mm-hmm. going back through history our first known story that's what it's all about are you talking about the epic of Gilgamesh? yep and okay refresh the audience's memory so what what's the deal there well the deal is Gilgamesh is is a demigod he's he's half mortal half god mm-hmm. and he's the king i forget what the the name of his kingdom is Right. And he's a total dick. He pushes people around, he takes their shit, he fucks their wives, he's just horrible. And eventually, word of this, this like, demonic wild man, Enkidu, comes to the people and they think, if we can only get Enkidu on our side, we can have him kick the shit out of Gilgamesh and then we'll be free. Right. And in the story, what ends up happening is Enkidu and Gilgamesh become buddies. 
and they right. travel they travel the world they have adventures they face monsters um they end up killing the it's the bull of the gods isn't it the yes sacred, it is yeah yeah the sacred bull and his punishment enkidu is killed he, he gets he gets disease he withers and dies because gilgamesh can't die mm-hmm. the gods can't can't take him out because he has part of like their power but enkidu is essentially immortal he's just this monstrous mortal guy Mm -hmm. and he dies and gilgamesh comes back and he realizes that at some point everything is just dust and and it'll deteriorate and in a way what it is is it's the the story is gilgamesh gaining empathy Mm -hmm. that he didn't care about the peons it was all about just inflicting himself but then when he found an equal and he made mm-hmm. a friend, and he lost a friend, he kind of learnt the value of impermanence, of, of that life is fleeting, and that there's there's kind of a, a beauty in its its temporary nature. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So in essence, he goes from being the worst boss ever to being a slightly better one, as far as we know. Right. I don't think we have the whole story, do we? We only have pieces of it. Yeah, it more or less goes together, but he comes back and he gives a speech at the city gate about how someday mm-hmm. everything is just going to be for nothing. And then that's kind of where it ends, so we don't know if there's more after or not. Right, right. Yeah, well, it happens. Huh. Okay, so the earliest story then is about a guy learning not to be the worst boss ever. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so so that idea of Mr. Dithers has been around for a long time. I suspect it's been around since the first cavemen organized groups. <laughs> yeah, I'm no like Og, him pushy. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. All right, hmm. okay. So is there anything else you wanted to cover in this episode? There might be a couple of little bits, because tying okay, in well, with... Okay, we should start tying it all together. Okay, because it's, it's, it's that idea of, of leadership being portrayed switching depending on the dominant attitude that because if you look at shakespeare shakespeare always portrayed the people in charge as being assholes pretty much yeah now that i think about it you're right they are pretty much always assholes yeah yeah and except there's one of the henry's isn't it that's actually a really good guy but except for him yeah but then there's the one that isn't that's true falls off his horse and dies so happy ending i guess and then he Mm -hmm. ends up buried in a parking lot in real life as i recall but yes yeah he did yep but that was because, again, Shakespeare was writing to the average people. Right. Shakespeare was the trash TV of his day. And and his, you can't go wrong, you know, talking smack about the bosses and the uh, rich and powerful. Yeah. Cause not again, with the masses. Because, again, for a serf, that idea of, 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 of freedom, of self-actualization, is seen as being, you know, royalty, as being the, the people in charge that can do whatever the hell they want. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And Shakespeare played on that. Of course. You want to sell people their fantasies, that's how you make money. Well, it is, and there's even a chance that Shakespeare himself saw things that way, that as you know, part of the burgeoning upper-middle class, the, mm-hmm. the royalty of the day wasn't fond of these people, because again, they were other people that were getting to be leaders in in their own right yes that's true so as as i recall shakespeare had a problem with taxes i seem to remember did he i thought he i thought he did i thought he got into a and that was one of the he moved 
at some point. Okay. I, I thought it was to get away from taxes or something. So it's possible that he didn't like authority either. Well, Shakespeare in general is a little bit of a mysterious character, so it's very possible. Yeah, if he's actually a person. Dun, dun. That's true. Um, and, but it would make sense that he would want to keep low-key, especially if he was making rich and powerful enemies and or was wanted for tax evasion. Yeah, yeah, and even then, like, like the... Uh... The royalty couldn't have been too excited. Well, some of them would be excited by him portraying them as assholes because if it was ones that didn't like the people in the play. Right, that's true. And then in a later play, they'd get thrown and the other guys would be like, oh, Shakespeare, he is brilliant. That's, that's true. That's very true. I just I just like the image of Shakespeare in his, in his uh, horse-drawn carriage being pulled over. Forsooth, I am not driving this carriage. I am merely traveling. Your road rules have no bearing on my traveling. I could tell, yeah, and then they beat him with sticks. Right, right. I could so see that, but anyway, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so throughout history, there's no question that we have uh, looked down on bosses. <laughs> well, it depends, because um, there's another pop culture example of good boss versus mm-hmm. bad vo- boss that I think is pretty prevalent. Okay. And this, you mentioned... Uh, earlier today when we were discussing the episode, and that would be Optimus Prime versus Megatron. Very true. Optimus Prime is the ultimate boss. And good boss, I mean. Megatron's the ultimate bad boss. Well, even then, well, Megatron is is definitely the ultimate bad one because he's working towards a goal. But he's hiring incompetent people who just basically fawn over him as his, you know, his... uh, the people, once he keeps around him, he keeps lots of weak, weak sycophants around him, which prevents him from actually accomplishing his goal because they're they're incompetent and they can't manage to actually get the job done. Well, and in true bad leader fashion, he sees them as disposable. There's that too, yes. So he doesn't take the time to pull them together as a team. He just, do what I want or else. Exactly. On the other hand, Optimus Prime considers every life precious and is always trying to nurture his troops and get them going forward and making sure everyone works together, yep. which is one of the reasons why I suspect why the Autobots keep losing. But that's not <laughs> not the point anyway. Well, part of it, technically, they, they end up winning eventually. But Optimus Prime is not a good leader either. Oh, why not? And it's because he's the diametric opposite of Megatron because Optimus Prime will he'll endanger the greater goal for the sake of the individuals. Right. That makes sense. Notoriously in the comic, in the early issues of the Marvel comic, he dies. Right. Because he, he, they're, 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 the story is him and Megatron are in a simulation Mm -hmm. that this kid creates like VR, like 30 years before it should be at all possible. And Megatron Optimus plug in, Mm-hmm. And they're competing in this digital world, right? And they're they a know, video game, basically, yeah. They are, and there's these little Pillsbury Doughboy-looking things that Megatron is, like, endangering, and and Optimus Prime steps in to save them from Megatron. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, Megatron achieve, finishes the mission and essentially wins the game. No, you're wrong. You okay. actually you've mis you've misremembered it because I I know I have that issue I remember it. What happens is this: at one point, 
Optimus Optimus wins, but Optimus wins by I believe he shoots out a ledge where or building where a bunch of these uh, things are, where a bunch of the local okay. residents are, and the ledge falls, but a bunch of the the local residents, the little Pillsbury Doughboy things, also fall and they die. Okay. He basically sacrifices a whole bunch of the, even though they're imaginary, even though they're fictional, he sacrifices a whole bunch of innocents to accomplish his goal. And because okay. of that, even though they're fictional characters in a video game, he says, I'm wrong, Megatron has won. Yeah, and then he blows himself up. And then he blows himself up. Yeah. And then, Although eventually they, they resurrect him, but whatever. Yeah, because yeah, they record him on a three and a half inch floppy. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> Yeah, they do science, but and he does stuff like that in the sh- in in the show as well. That he'll endanger mm-hmm. the 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 greater mission for the sake right. of one of one of one of the troops, right? Which a good leader would not do because you're basically sacrificing everybody for one person or yep. risking everybody for one person. Which that I mean, we do idolize leaders who do that. You know, no marine gets left behind and all that kind of thing. But in reality. It doesn't always work that way. Yeah, it's it's. There's an old debate mm-hmm. between like officers and NCOs mm-hmm. as to uh, what's more important, the men or the mission. Mm-hmm. And the stereotype is that if you're an NCO, like a sergeant, it's mm-hmm. the men, right? Because you work with them. They're they're your your kin, your 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 siblings. Whereas for the officer, they're your the, brothers. Mm-hmm. Yep, the officer, the stereotype, it's the mission because the officers. Mm-hmm. Are the big picture people? They're not worried. Right, yeah. They're coordinating the whole war. They're not worried about this one little battle kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right, and then that's sense. that's the stereotype. That's the kind of it's it's a discussion that will will come up at different times too on different courses. Mm-hmm. I I believe that, and so in that sense, it's weird. Optimus Prime is actually a decent sergeant, maybe, but he's actually a bad officer. Yep. And, and, and Megatron's the opposite, right? And it's it's funny to see that is because we never think of it. We think of Optimus as good and Megatron as bad, but in effect, they're both shitty leaders because they're both doing the exact opposite of each other. But in doing so so far apart, they're both doing it wrong. Mm. Wow, I never thought of it that way. You completely destroyed my image of Optimus Prime, <laughs> Don. Thank you very much. Yeah, you don't hear people talk smack about Optimus very much. <laughs> no, that's pretty rare. I mean, he's considered one, or at least before Michael Bay's movies, was considered one of the you know the greatest leader characters in North American fiction. He's right up there with Cop- Captain Kirk. Mm-hmm. If you ask people about great leaders, they'll talk about Star Trek captains, and they'll usually talk about Optimus Prime, at least of our generation, and I think the younger generation too, actually, a lot mm-hmm. of them. Oh, and Captain America probably too. Yeah. Um, who... Actually, is not all that great a leader either, but, but I guess we don't have to go there. <laughs> well, he's and depending on the iteration, he's he's a bad leader mm. because first off, he's not exactly a leader. He's got bereft rank, right? And secondly, if depending on the iteration, like if you look at the original comics, mm-hmm. he's fulfilling that role that non-leaders think that leadership means self-actualization. Oh, okay. And I, I'll use the example because Stupid Comics just did a uh, Captain America story. Okay. Where you find out that, that the Emperor had a, an illegitimate son that he sent to North America to be part of a secret infiltration during the war. Mm-hmm. 
and he leads his army to attack secretly on on, on like the uh like the the American coast. Mm-hmm. And he's he's been moving his way up up the Californian coast wiping out like American advanced warning bases. Right. And Captain America and Bucky find out and they like charge in and kick his ass and as the stupid comics uh comments constantly point out, you know if you had to just instead of wasting time fighting these assholes run ahead and told those hundreds of trained soldiers at that base that's about to be wiped out before these guys get there, they could probably have like done something about this instead of you and your teenage sidekick thinking you can handle this all on your own. Right. So, so in essence, Captain America sabotages the war effort because of his own ego. Right. Wow. I'd never thought of it that way, but it's the sort of thing that again, that, that, that people think a leader mm-hmm. does that if you're the leader you of course have the highest stats and you're the awesomest guy and you can right. just kick the ass of all those like one hit dice npcs right and and it's wrong there's i was talking to a bunch of like officer types mm-hmm. that are, are just coming up and I, I i i told them my philosophy has always been if i'm the commander mm-hmm. it's not my job to be the smartest person or the toughest, or the strongest, or the best shot, or the best driver. Mm-hmm. It's my job to know who those people are and get them in positions to take advantage of their abilities. Right, yeah. Because most people don't think of it like that way. They think if you're the leader, that you're super awesome at everything. And right, that's, that's the fantasy leader, though. Yeah, and that's how you get to be leader, because I'm just overall awesome and i can like rewire the vehicle while we're driving and i'm a crack shot kung fu ninja master yeah and and, in real life no that this is one of the reasons in the military Mm -hmm. officers do different training because their job is different an officer is not expected to go running in there and shoot up the enemy Mm -hmm. that's a waste of their time and training they're coordinating the people that are doing that Right, but for an action movie or story, that's really boring. It is. And that's so why... they never do that. No, that's why Kirk would always beam down to the planet with at least two of the five main leadership people of the Enterprise. And Picard's a little better that he has his second-in-command do it, but only barely, because it's still the bridge crew. Yep, and it's it's the same sort of thing I wonder about if the idea of Kirk beaming down with all the important people was something that the network did Mm -hmm. because on star trek again going with roddenberry understanding a little how this sort of thing works in the first episode in the pilot that didn't get made pike beams down number one stays on the ship Mm -hmm. because that was one of the things that they got in trouble with at the network because number one was a female officer Mm-hmm. And the network lost their mind that you can't have a, a woman in charge of a combat ship. That's just not done. Right. Yes, that's true. Yeah, you're right. I had for, I'd forgotten about that. But they, they made th- a point of doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an interesting point. I mean, I think him having to beam down, especially him and Nimoy having to beam down, is because they're the actors that are paid the most and they have to be on the screen the most. And if yeah. the action is taking place on the planet, that's where they have to be. Yeah, and, and I think there's that. Because one of the things that's kind of interesting about the uh, the original Trek is you can still see 
part of that rank structure mm-hmm. because th- there, w- there, there was always a clear chain of command as to who stepped in. Mm-hmm. That technically Spock is science officer, so he shouldn't be like a combat arms guy, but he was also first officer. So if Kirk's mm-hmm. not around, it's Spock. Do you remember who, who, if Spock isn't around, who's next? Scotty. Yep. And they did that in a bunch of episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, did. yep, after that, do you remember who it should have been, but they never showed in the original show? Would that be Uhura? Nope. She's the next. Who's just before her? Sulu? No, who is it? Sulu. It is Sulu. Okay, Chief yes. Helmsman. Okay, he should have. He been. He because there. I think there is an episode where he is effectively in charge. There is. I'm positive there is. I remember him being in charge. I do and, actually. And then the animated one. There is one where Uhura is in charge. Right. So they're just working their way through the bridge crew. It's just poor Chekhov who gets left off the list. Well, Chekhov is is the is is the he the other ones are all section chiefs. Like Scotty is chief engineer. Mm-hmm. Sulu is a uh, chief helmsman. Mm-hmm. Uhura is the uh, chief communications officer. They're all, it's it's the, they're they're the department heads. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Whereas if I remember the thing with Chekhov and the the guy he replaced, whose name I can't mm-hmm. remember. I think they're both ensigns, weren't they? Wasn't O'Reilly? O'Reilly, yeah. He was an ensign too. That they yes, he was. Yeah. They're not. An ensign isn't a qualified command position in real life. Okay. It's like officer cadet. You're learning the the job, but the other ones, yeah, they're all department heads. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Because there was another guy in the first season. I can't remember that ends up taking the uh, the helm in one of the episodes. And then probably hmm. disappears. I can't remember his name. But only like one episode? Yeah. Huh. I don't remember that. Like I remember Sulu being in charge and Scotty and... Uh, yeah, I don't remember another guy being in charge. There hmm. is. It's going to bug me that I can't remember his name. But yeah, it was that idea, like I say, hmm. that, that that they had that that sense of, of rank. And even Next Gen kind of, sort of did that because because mm-hmm. you're right that what happened is if picard wasn't around they would make a point of trying not to have picard and raker off the ship at the same time yes that was the whole deal mm-hmm. and as i recall i think raker left the ship on the away missions more than picard much more like the whole idea was that it should usually be riker because picard is supposed to stay on board the ship yeah but picard would you not quite accept that and also you know he was a popular character so they got him off the ship as much as possible well then the catch too is is he'd he'd leave the uh, diplomatic missions that's true Mm -hmm. and that again would be a function of the the captain of of a ship right yeah whereas Riker was going anywhere that was risky or dangerous it should be him yeah and in theory in a lot of cases it it shouldn't it should be be like uh war I know that's true, actually, because mm-hmm. he's he's the tactical officer, and the way the next gen little Star Trek oddity, next gen kind of consolidated positions, because mm-hmm. the idea was that the ships were more advanced and training is more advanced. So 
you didn't need the 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 specifics of job that you had in the original because the original was modeled after like an actual ship mm-hmm. where you you need they're they're doing ones like lower decks has gone back to that idea too that you need like i'm the official lug nut greaser because in real life if you don't have somebody that spends their whole day doing that the ship grinds to a halt splits in half sinks and you all die right right that makes sense actually star trek is an interesting example of what you were saying is wrong with people's idea of leadership because the characters on Star Trek, especially next gen and afterwards, all of them, especially the captains are masters of everything. Yep. Um, now Picard's not quite as bad and neither Cisco, but Janeway, especially. Yep. She was better at every job than the other people on the ship. She was literally the par- she was better than the engineer at engineering. She was better at the tactical person at tacticing. <laughs> they were all she basically she could outfight the security officer. She, she literally helped. was better at everything. Yeah, she even like uh, backs up the uh, doctor in surgery in one episode. <laughs> yep, yep, exactly. She's if she's she's either equal to or better than every rank, which is one of the reasons why she was so boring. Yep, because there was nothing she couldn't do. Well, and again, it's it's not it's not very Trek, and uh, yeah, a few of the ones after, like um, Enterprise, didn't quite have that problem. They but, tried to go back to the more specialized idea. Yeah, it it still had that problem though that the captain could do whatever the plot required. Yep. Like there were times with Picard was kind of the last one you ever really saw flummoxed. Mm-hmm. But again, yeah, it's it's writing like that to to use the uh, the. Um, the the nerd dichotomy mm-hmm. what a lot of people ended up what end up writing is star wars because mm-hmm. star wars does that where the person in charge is just super awesome at everything because that's the fantasy role yep. i mean in olden days the ideal was you know the warrior king right the the king who was badass with the sword and badass you know le- was capable of leading the troops and was awesome at tactics and was awesome at everything that's the ideal right (laughs) that's the hero and that's the one the character everyone wants to be in theory anyway yeah um and that's the so that's star wars the fantasy ideal yep wherever is the best at like lightsabering is is naturally the leader (laughs) yeah and and it shows that too because if you look when you get to uh, empire strikes back Mm -hmm. um uh, Han and Luke are both like like uh, force commanders. Mm-hmm. I forget their their exact. They call Han captain, but you do that because he's the captain of of the Falcon, right? But Luke, they they call something else because he's like a flight commander because he's leading the attack to mm-hmm. to to stall the uh, to stall the Adats, right? Well, how does that happen in a a, a couple of years? Just because he blew up the Death Star? People don't realize it. Say officer positions. Mm-hmm. like a sergeant's position, it's mostly paperwork. Right. Because any big organization, and this kind of goes with what we were talking about at the very, 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 very beginning, that leadership happens because you have a bunch of people doing something and you need to coordinate them. Right, right, yeah. And that's why a lot of leadership in real life is administration. Mm-hmm. So if you're a sergeant in the army, it's not all leading. Yeah, it's mostly filling in reports and sitting in in like meetings and talking back and forth and stuff. 
Right. So it's like, the planning and administration side. It's not the actual go out and do stuff. Yeah, it, it that that's that's a, a a big part of it. Officers even more so because remember, officers are big picture, so they're coordinating the big operation. Mm-hmm. And how does how does an organization do that? Paperwork and memos. <laughs> Now, presumably in a science fiction setting, they've got bots or computers that that are actually taking care of most of that stuff. Yep, in in theory. Mm-hmm. And again, it's, it's some. Oh, sorry. No, in Star Wars, there are definitely droids that are doing that. Yeah, there there are. There's other things too that, like um, the original Marvel comic from the seventies and the eighties, gets maligned a lot. Mm-hmm. But they did a lot of things I thought were pretty pretty clever, and I wish more people would would do because there's a story where they go to it's a banking planet. Mm-hmm. The whole planet is one massive computer that keeps track of like financial records for all these giant galaxy spanning corporations. Mm-hmm. And it's it in the story it's neutral. Of course. And what the story is is Leia needs funding for the rebellion. Mm-hmm. And she's going to this planet to try to arrange like loans and deals and that to get funding for the rebellion, which that kind of thing is canon. Because if you remember, that's how in the story the rebels end up with X wings. Mm-hmm. That Incom makes them. The Empire is going to get them, but the rebels perform kind of a paperwork snafu and get sh- the shipment instead. Right. Like that's that's something to that effect is canon. And what the story is is Leia goes to this banking planet to try to secure some some loans. And Darth Vader shows up to essentially drown her in paperwork. <laughs> Just to fuck with her. And and a lot of people would look at that story and go, well, that's stupid. But I thought that was brilliant because, again, it takes into account that bigger picture. It builds a world. It shows that part of leadership that never gets dealt with. That you deal with a bunch of bullshit if you're the person in charge. Mm-hmm. Oh, Definitely. Another great example was uh, from the uh, Master and Commander books. Okay. The guy with the goat. <laughs> I don't remember his name, but I know who you're talking about. Yeah. It's just a, it's just a little side thing in, in, in I think it's the second or the third book. Mm-hmm. That the, the captain's sitting down, he's sitting down oh. with the doctor, and he's going through, he's got the dispatches, the mail, basically. Right. And one, the first letter he picks up, because he gives this little speech about, you think your day is going to be good, and then you get something like this, because it's the crewman that was caught sodomizing a goat. Mm-hmm. Because you'd have livestock on the ship, right? Cause that's... I remember, yeah. And he's like, why do I got to deal with this stuff? And as the doctor, they're trying to figure out what the suitable punishment is for mm-hmm. sodomizing a goat, because I remember the doctor says, well, you could maroon them. Well, on different islands, the man and the goat. Don't put them on the same island. That seems appropriate. <laughs> and people don't realize that's what being the boss is. It's, it's, it's not leading the charge. It's mostly just, okay, what did these idiots do this time? Right. Keeping things together. So who would actually be leading the charge then? The sergeant in those cases? Like there'd be the, I guess, man-at-arms or the sergeant. Their, their job would be actually lead, leading the troops into battle? In real life, it kind of depends what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So basically, if you're you're in in, I don't think I'm going to give away any any secrets. I'll make a point of not giving away any secrets. Mm-hmm. But if I've got like say in 40k, what would be my squad? Right. In real life, when I've got that squad, that like small fighting unit, mm-hmm. there's an officer coordinating it. 
Mm-hmm. There's an NCO that's essentially the, the leader on the ground. Right. The officers in charge, they will be there with the troops. Right. So if there's like an infantry attack, mm-hmm. uh, the lieutenant will be generally be there with the troops going in for the attack. Mm-hmm. If you're doing um, like a, like an air raid, mm-hmm. the lieutenant will probably, like they're in the front, well actually fighter pilots are all officers anyway. Right. So you've got all the, that that's the officer's job is is flying the fighter the enlisted pilots do like transport and helicopters and stuff right. um so that works a little weird the air force is a little weird if you're doing like say armored combat vehicles mm-hmm. there'll be an officer that's coordinating the movement of the vehicles and the officer will typically be with them mm-hmm. but not leading the charge right like, they'll be kind of like the second rank coordinating the advance, whereas it's the NCOs that are right there in the middle of the fighting, directing the, the, the vehicles step by step, directing the troops. So, generally speaking, NCOs are usually the ones that are actually leading the charge. Well, the officers are usually a step back from them trying to coordinate things. I'm going to say essentially, but in real life, shit happens. Because the officers are right, right there with you. So they're going to be in right. the fighting. And they don't have a choice. The bad guy's not going to say, no, that important looking guy over there, let's leave him alone. They're going to do the opposite. Mm, right, right. So, the, so, the, so, so it, it's, it's, it's not, I don't want to give the idea that like the officer is slacking off. That mm-hmm. they're, they're right there. They're right there in harm's way with everybody else. Right. But they're not the ones coordinating the actual attack in general. Also, it depends on what level of officer we're talking about. Yeah, because what, what ends up happening there, and even with uh, non-commissioned officers, like when you get in Canada, like a warrant officer, mm-hmm. that's a lot of training and experience. You get like a captain, say, for the Canadian Army. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of training and experience. They're further back because they're directing the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to be right there fighting every fight because, again, that's a waste of their time and experience. Exactly. Yeah. They're they're the ones coordinating the activities of the groups, and that and that's what the lieutenants are for. That they're getting the instructions and they're passing it on because the captain will come up with their big complicated plan, mm-hmm. and they'll pass it down to like like the the lieutenants. And the lieutenants are the ones that are actualizing it because they'll pass on to the NCOs what they want to have happen. And then the NCOs make it happen. The lieutenants right. are right there with them watching what's going on, sending that information back up to like the captains and, and the majors so that they know mm-hmm. what's going And then that's how, that's how it works in real life. Right. That makes sense. And that sounds like that's a pretty standard setup for most militaries. Yeah, because again, it's, it's the sort of thing. It's not a hundred percent planned it kind of happens based on what works mm, right. because the military is a great testing ground for a lot of like uh social constructs like that because if it doesn't work everybody dies and you know not to do that again right although in reality though modern warfare anyway you aren't the actual number of casualties in most battles really really low like usually a battle will end before you even reached like 20% casualties. Isn't that true? Uh, it depends what you call a battle. Okay, that's true. Yeah, well, one of the things that happens in the modern world is that that you don't have 
the old Napoleonic or Warhammer style. I line my guys up here, you line your guys up there. We aren't screaming at each other, shooting until like one guy's left standing. Right. Like a lot of battles are fought for a goal. Mm -hmm. So it's like if you play Warhammer 40k using the mission rules. <laughs> right. That if I'm attacking you, because in yeah, we're, we don't do Napoleonic warfare. It'll be that I want to take out this specific person or I want to capture this specific piece of equipment that I know you're moving to see what it, I want to know what it does. So mm -hmm. there'll be a, a goal and you're fighting to achieve that goal. And then even if I'm winning, I'll probably piss off if I achieve it because there's no point wasting time killing all of these guys I don't really care about and possibly losing right. a few more of my own. Right. Makes sense. I blow up that bridge, I take out that airfield, I steal those plans, I, like, fuck with your radio, I kidnap your commander. Like, it, it, it'll be something, a specific objective. Right. Although, some of those objectives, like, take that hill over there, are going to result in a lot of casualties. Yeah, they do, and, and what people don't realize is actions like that tend, tend to be multi-layered. Mm-hmm. Because this is another part of, 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 of leadership and entertainment, I think, why entertainment gets that luxury mm -hmm. of that borderline sociopathic kind of, you know, I can do it all myself leader, whereas in real life you can't do that. Mm -hmm. Because even an idea of take that hill, there's a lot of coordination that has to go on. Because mm -hmm. in real life, and you'll see this in, in war movies made during times of war. Mm-hmm. You'll see this, and as a modern person, you might not quite understand what's going on, but if i got to take that hill, the first thing I'm going to do is drop some artillery on it. Right. Because I want to scare the enemy away, or at the very least, get them to keep their heads down so they don't shoot. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to send an air, I'm going to start shelling it. That requires things. There's specific people that are going to be aiming those shots for the guns, even the planes. There's... Chances are there's specific people set up that are giving the planes information. And the mm -hmm. planes the planes may not just send one guy in, drop some shit, and be the end of it. They might send guys to drop men, and then there's another wing behind them mm -hmm. that's waiting to see how good the first guy's aimed and if we have to do a follow-up. Right. Once we do that, I might send in the, uh, the heavy armor mm -hmm. to overrun the position afterwards. Because if I can blow up like your big guns, that means... That guy with the rifle is not going to do much against my tank. And that guy with the rocket launcher, if I can keep his head down, he's not going to get a chance to fire at my tank. So we send the tanks in to roll over stuff and break up your defenses. And then the infantry comes running in, and the infantry is ultimately what holds that position. Mm -hmm. tanks, can, tanks can't hold a position in real life. Right. They're not made for that. That's true. No, because... Uh, I park it on a hill. This hill's mine! And then that asshole with the $100 rocket launcher peeks up, and I'm fucked. <laughs> there we go. So that... Hey. so that. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, oh, just that takes a lot of coordination just for that. And that's, mm -hmm. like I say, you never see things like that in a movie. In a movie, it's always like secret agent kind of shit, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, because that's the more interesting stuff, the commando stuff, the secret agent stuff. Yeah. And they forget that that's not how it actually works. <laughs> yeah, that's... That's one of the problems with, like, say, Saving Private Ryan. Mm -hmm. We're going to send five guys into the middle of enemy territory to find this one asshole and bring him home. What, what are those five guys going to do? Like, the, the movie kind of showed it when they ran into contact with the enemy and they started getting picking off, picked off one by one. Mm -hmm. That it was only when, uh, when, when, uh, when uh, Ted Danson comes in to save your ass. 
Mm-hmm. And that's in real life, yeah, because five guys in enemy territory to to grab that one guy who's he's infantry. He's going to be mixed in the middle of all the fucking fighting. You, basically, you're giving up a whole bunch of other lives just for that one guy. Well, either that or you just don't like those five guys and you're sending them on a, on a very dangerous snipe hunt. That would be the Tanya the Evil approach to... Um, <laughs> have you actually read or seen Tanya the Evil yet? Yes, I have. Yeah. So, so, so you get the joke that, yes, that would, yep. be, that would be Tanya's approach to... Just uh, from the anime and uh, light novel series Tanya the Evil. And she lives up to her name. Yep. <laughs> if she doesn't like you, she'll just send you to die. <laughs> Um, anyway, so on that happy note, uh, I'm afraid we're going to have to bring this to, bring this episode to a close. Um, th- any any final thoughts, Don, before we go? I think we kind of covered it all, but I, th- I, th- I think it's just that idea for me personally. I wish we would get more of mm-hmm. kind of the, the nuts and bolts of things. I wish it wasn't just all like the superhero, you know, Captain Awesome comes in and saves the day sort of thing. Because it, it makes the story more interesting and it flushes your world out more. It does on both those counts, but the problem is the uh, effect of translating those stories into interesting, exciting media work heavily against doing that. I think it, I think going to your point, if you don't have any real experience, it does. Mm-hmm. If if you do, like, say you have, like, experience being a military commander or heading a business or being, mm-hmm. like, a department head for anything, I think you can find stories that write themselves. <laughs> Fair enough. Which is why we need more people with life experience telling these stories. <laughs> That's a Simpsons episode. <laughs> Okay, well, we'll talk about that another time. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, Have a good night, and um, God bless, and we'll see you next month. Bye. As detailed, dismissed! Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya!